Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to the third happy hour at the Sports and Exercise Medicine uh, Research Centre at La Trobe University. Um, I hope you are all got your beverage of choice, your questions at the ready, and your diamond-encrusted microphones ready at the go because we've got our resident songbird and our shoulder expert here with us uh, tonight, Dr. Tanya Pizzari. Welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> so I forgot my I, microphone. I know, we sort of should have got you the sort of the diamond studded uh, microphone. Maybe we can um, put that into some requests for grants later on. <laughs> yes. So I just wanted to start with a bit of housekeeping uh, before we start. These sessions generally run, in, run for about 45 minutes to an hour. What we'll do is we'll just ask Tanya a couple of opening questions. Then we're going to open up the floor to you guys to ask questions for the next half an hour or so. Um, in that, we were asking you to place your questions in the Q&A function in Zoom. So you should see it right next um, down in your uh, menu below. Um, Please don't put your questions in chat because unfortunately we can't monitor both and we won't see them. Um, so again, please keep your questions into the Q&A function. You do have the ability to upvote questions that you want to hear the answer to. So if someone else asks a question and you go, yes, I really want to know the answer to that, make sure you upvote it and it becomes higher to, in our attention. Also, be aware that I might actually come to you to get you to ask your questions. So make sure you have your microphone ready um, and that question ready because then you can ask it directly to Tanya. The last thing I'll ask is can we please have no case study presentations? It's always best bang for our buck if you ask generalized questions that are relevant uh, to our, all of our attendees. So, Tan, I'm if academia doesn't work, I reckon I've got a job in breakfast radio based on all this Q&As. So I'm going to ask you a very breakfast radio DJ question. Okay. You are deserted on an island. What's the one song or the one record that you have to have with you? That's an interesting question. Uh, look, my favourite band of all time is Living Colour, which is not a wasn't a very popular uh, band, but it's Definitely my favourite. I'd have to take uh, one of their albums with me. Are we talking uh, 80s hair rock or a pop band? What, what are we talking? Oh, uh, it, was, it was kind of a rock, soul, almost gospel um, band. It was 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and, the, and the song that they're known for? Uh, probably Love Reese's Ugly Head. Okay. Cool. <laughs> I'm putting I, that I, out there. I can't say I'm familiar with it, but uh, I'll have to take a deep dive on Spotify afterwards and uh, make sure I give it a listen. Good. If anyone else understands, just let me know. <laughs> there might be some closet fans somewhere. That's in right. That's right. <laughs> um, now, the other thing is you do have a fantastic voice. Anyone who's been to the SMA conferences has heard you sing at some point during them. Um, so what we thought we were going to do is we're going to sort of make this a bit of a quiz show um, and we're going to ask you whether you could sing a song but using 
um, the words from an abstract of one of your papers. Tanya, when you're ready, give us the song. Okay, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna be a diva. Take my headphones off. Okay. And I'm, I'm singing from an abstract of uh, Sarah Warby, who did a fantastic randomized controlled trial on multi-digital instability of the shoulder. And these are the results. Uh, okay. Between group D, Significant effects now all fun and games that was great to and again i think everyone can give you a virtual round of applause through uh, zoom but thank you I, I think one of the where i want to start with you tonight is whenever i'm a part of a workshop or a pd session on lower limb tendinopathy the number one question we get is what about the shoulder what, what about the shoulder? Give me something about the shoulder. So I was wondering if you could share with us sort of one tip um, about the assessment of shoulder or one thing that you think is vitally important for people to integrate into their clinical practice to help improve patient outcomes. Yeah. Um, look, I think uh, probably the, the most important thing that is sometimes missed and there seems to be have been a period recently where it was kind of thrown out for a little while um, and I think it's coming back which is good um, is, is essentially the scapula and, and how the scapula is functioning so how the scapula is moving how it's sitting how it's sitting out of the movement how it's sitting at the middle of the movement where it's sitting at the end of the movement um, and where it's sitting in functional movements I think that is the, really the critical piece to having a function, a good functioning shoulder, and certainly a critical piece for rehabilitation. Uh, so yeah, and as I said, I feel like it's it's potentially for various reasons been neglected recently, um, but hopefully coming back into vogue a little bit. So do you think there's a, a specific reason around why it sort of fell out of vogue? Is it one of those things that's difficult to assess, or is it just not considered? Yeah, look, I mean, that might be part of it. Certainly, it's difficult to get an objective assessment. So, you know, you can use uh, inclinometers to, to look at where it's actually sitting. That's difficult through range. It's it's almost, well, it is impossible to look at from, you know, um, a biomechanical, 3D biomechanical situation unless you stick pins into bones, which is not helpful, and then it doesn't work because it's moving over skin. Um, so it is difficult to assess, but I think... Oh, look, there was probably a few big voices out there um, on social media in particular that, that weren't very pro-scapular for a period and that sort of seemed to infiltrate as, as it does these days, seemed to infiltrate the, the, the community um, for, for a little, for a period. And, and certainly when I was teaching uh, throughout Australia, 
state of the world, I got lots of questions about the value of what I was teaching based on the scapular stuff because of, of particular um, opinions in, in social media about it. But yeah, I think it's swinging back a little bit, hopefully, because people see clinically uh, that it's really important to their patients. Um, so I think that's part of it. Uh, maybe maybe a little bit of a combination of that. And then also some, some of the research showing that potentially, you know, where the scapular position is doesn't necessarily mean that someone will get injured. And, you know, I completely agree with that, but it's, you know, fitting it in with the whole clinical picture. So there's a number of things that were happening, I think, that, that potentially popped it out of vogue. So I'll just sort of say to all of our attendees, get your questions in now. Um, we're going to come to you in a second. Um, just to follow up on that, uh, Tanya, do you want to go through some of what you do when you're assessing someone with shoulder pain and maybe sort of around what you're looking for in terms of scapular position and how that informs your uh, rehabilitation exercises? Yeah, look, I mean, you, you can't underestimate, underemphasize and estimate the value of the subjective assessment, obviously. Um, so in terms of, you know, in particular, how did it happen? Was there a mechanism? Was it insidious type onset? Because that will automatically starts to direct you into different, potentially different physical assessments. Um, the aggravating uh, and easing factors, again, can start to point you into different kind of physical assessments, starts to put those pieces down to your puzzle of your diagnosis. You know, in the physical assessment, uh, it might very much based around your subjective assessment as as when you're assessing any any joint really or any but you know looking at the scapular position asymmetry asymmetry is not a problem but does it actually contribute to their problem that's what you're there to assess you know is it uh, that it's downwardly rotated so you know majority of us sit at computers most of the time when we sit with, a, with an anterior tilt and a downward rotation. Um, you know, lots of us are like that, but is it that part of the, so looking at how it's sitting, but as I said before, how it's actually moving. Um, and really importantly with your physical assessment, can you change that? So if you, if you think it's a problem, if you think it's part of their issue, and you can change that and then reassess, reassess and, and make a change to their symptoms, then that's a really important part of where you're going to be directed for their solution, basically. That's fantastic. So it's sort of always, I think, whenever I hear anything about shoulder and sort of diagnosis and assessment, there are oh, a plethora of different tests and you only have to do a cursory uh, literature review <laughs> and you can be... It can sometimes look like a, um, just a list of random people's names rather than anything that's really useful. <laughs> and I know Jeremy Lewis uh, just recently published an editorial about special tests. So I sort of wonder if you could sort of share some of the perspectives from that paper, but also your perspectives on where special tests sit and why we wouldn't potentially use them. Yeah, sure. Look, I think, um, you know, when you read Jeremy's stuff, and I have a great relationship with Jeremy, but you talk, uh, you know, there are over 200 special tests, usually named after somebody. So there's lots of names, and it's sometimes hard to remember what, who did it and what they called it and, and uh, yeah, what it's supposed to be testing. And his beef with them really is that, well, first of all, that there's so many, and secondly, that they're merely a kind of 
pain provocation tests, which which I would agree with. But at the same time, I think there's a, there there are a number that you definitely still clinically get something out of. So you're not going to throw them out completely because even though they're pain provocation, they do provoke pain in particular areas I find clinically. So maybe it's an anterior structure or a superior structure or a posterior structure. And some of those special tests, you kind of get something from. So I'm not doing 200 of them. But certainly, you know, some of the rotator cuff tests, even though they're not definitive, they're not saying this person definitely has a supraspinatus tear, for example, if you do an empty can, full can. But if the person can't hold their arm up and create any force to push up against your hand, you know, in an empty can or a full can position, then it gives you some information. It gives you information about their deficits. And then also it gives you information about what direction you might take for rehabilitation but then again importantly and this comes from a lot of Lynn Watson's work um, obviously we work pretty closely together is that can you correct it so can you do something to the scapula put it in a better position can you put the humeral head can you end locate it into the glenoid fossa and do that test again and does it change the outcome and if it does again that sort of directs your solution to that person's problem um, if it does then you know you're thinking a whole lot of other things but I think the, the clinical tests still just add to the picture so you've got your subjective you're starting to, to really you know starting to knuckle down as to what it might be and then your your tests including special tests might just really reinforce that so I don't think we can throw them out completely a lot of them we can but there's still some the rotator cuff tests some of the instability tests um, you know some of the AC joint tests uh, to to try to differentiate what the structures um, may what structures may be involved, I think are still really important clinically. In the research, it might not look so great when you look at sensitivity, specificity, you know, positive, negative, predictive values, and and likelihood of change ratios. But clinically, I think they're still quite valuable. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's sort of that goes back to if you can use the test as a sort of symptom provocation and then retest it to help guide your management that sort of at least gives you a direction Absolutely. maybe not maybe not a pathoanatomical diagnosis which i think that sort of is a nice segue into hamish ashton's question so i'm going to unmute you hamish hamish do you want to ask tanya your question yeah uh firstly hi from across the What's your thoughts on clinical diagnosis? The shoulder seems to be going in the direction similar to the back that let's just call it a dysfunction or whatever, treat some symptoms. Where I sort of was brought up a little bit with Syriac saying let's get a diagnosis and treat the diagnosis. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, look, I agree, Hamish, and I think, um you know, there's evidence both ways for the back as well. Like I know, I know there's lots of research um, about just kind of treating the, you know, the dysfunction, as you say. Um, but then there's also evidence the other way where you can, you could actually subgroup and potentially get great outcomes to subgroup. And and so I'm still in that camp for the shoulder. Like I don't think you can just say, oh, it's um, you know, subacromial pain syndrome and treat everyone exactly the same and expect to get a good outcome for everyone. It just can't happen. And the research shows us that. So, you know, when you're looking at all the research about how crappy subacromial decompressions are or, you know, the Cochrane review in 2016 that showed 
physio and exercise is, is no better than placebo. Um, the, the big problem is in those studies is that we're not subgrouping our diagnosis at all. We're just putting all these people in with subacromial pain syndrome or rotator cuff related pain syndrome, whatever you want to call it, the umbrella term, and we're expecting that we can treat them all the same and that they're going to have a good outcome, which is just impossible. So Hamish, I agree that we need to be better than that and I think we can be better than that. There's going to be a cases that um, you know potentially we don't have a particular diagnosis for and you know there's going to be other groups that it's might be this and it might be that but I think we are a little bit better at subgrouping, subgrouping, subgrouping what's actually happening in the shoulder I, I think we're going to get better outcomes in our research and also clinically I think that's really important thank you Hamish yeah thanks for your question Hamish it's sort of Tan, it's every time we need to go through a systematic review, we sort of say, oh, there's so much heterogeneity in the data and it sort of probably lends it to the point that you're making in terms of we've got this people with shoulder pain, but who makes up our group and what are the features of them is a little bit difficult to glean from the literature and apply the literature, isn't it? Yeah, and look, we we uh, perfect example. We Rita Kinsella is one of um, our PhD students at Laysom at the moment, uh, and and for her masters, and we're still running it in the background of her PhD. But for her masters, did a uh, study looking at you know subacromial pain and differences exercises, so isometric versus eccentric versus concentric kind of uh, exercises for the condition. And I was one of the assessors to determine whether people were eligible to be in the study. Um, and what we really found was, you know, there was such a broad spectrum. So we, we were kind of looking at, you. we thought we were looking at with our assessment, we had a whole assessment algorithm. We thought we would get, you know, 60 plus year old, predominantly female, grotty cuff type, the, the typical kind of, you know, shoulder pain, subacromial pain, people you think of clinically. But in fact, we had this, we had that group, but then we also had this group of predominantly, you know, subacromial pain, they still fit in with the algorithm, but really predominantly caused probably by instability. Um, and then there was people in between, you know, your 40, sort of 50 year olds who had other things going on. But when you do, when we did our assessment based on our algorithm that was, you know, heavily based on what's in, out there in the literature, they all ticked the box for subacromial pain. And so when we're going to treat these people, should we be treating them all the same? How can we expect that your, you know, 70 year old person with a grotty shoulder and your 25 year old person with shoulder pain are going to have the same outcome from your rehab. We just, we just really can't. So I think we need to get better at, at that diagnostic kind of categorisation. Fantastic. Now, I've got to ask this question, if not for me, but it is a question that is coming on a Q&A as well, is the role of imaging. I think it sort of lends it a little bit to Hamish's question in terms of frequently imaging is fantastic at giving us a pathoanatomical diagnosis and maybe not just one but multiple um <laughs> where's the role of imaging does it have a role yeah look i think uh, look clinically i only um request imaging when someone's had a traumatic um instability episode so particularly a young person who's dislocated their shoulder you want imaging really to see what what's the extent of structural pathology because conservative management often can't overcome that. So I think there's a role in, in that situation. 
in a lot of other situations, uh, I think we're probably best not to get imaging because it can really just build, you know, all those psychosocial sort of elements that, that come from, you know, knowing that you've got a tear. Like everyone's got a tear in the supraspinatus when you're 45. Like it's not part of their problem. So I think uh, unless, unless there's, you know, red flags, obviously, or there's been a, a significant traumatic incident um, or, you know, rehab's really not progressing and you just, you know, you've, you've done your best, uh, then imaging may be appropriate. But I think early imaging is usually quite uh, uh, a problem in, in trying to manage shoulders then. And everyone's got a bursitis. I always say to my young physios um, or, or even to the patients, great, you've got a bursitis, it means you're alive. Like if you've got a shoulder pain, you will always have bursitis. You just can't not. It doesn't mean it's causing you pain. Fantastic. And I, I've heard you say that a number of times and it's such a really important thing because we can sort of say as, and I'm sure a lot of people have some perspectives on imaging and might think it's not, not a lot of benefit, but our patients think it matters, think it's really important. So being able to talk to them and say that bursitis is basically meaning that you're alive um, can re remove a little bit of the fear around of it. So I think that's really important. Um, yeah, absolutely. Amber, Amber Bennett had a question. I'll let her ask it for you. Hi, Amber. Hi, Tanya. How are you? Yeah, long good time. Long time no see. It has been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have been trying to kind of piece together answers to this question uh, for a couple months now. But in terms of return to sport testing for contact sports, it seems like a lot of clubs um, and a lot of sports kind of each have their own protocols. Um, or maybe there's not really a structure at all. And so when you're getting back, other than doing the actual sport, you know, in a, in a graded progressive fashion, are there any key elements that you look for when you're returning someone back to be able to tolerate impact loading or that long lever? Um, yeah, that's... You know, Sorry, uh, is Amber cutting everyone or just me? I think she just, yeah, no, I think she just, uh, we lost her at the end. But yeah, if you want to start with her question. Yeah, sure. This is where we need Andrea. Where's Andrea? <laughs> no, uh, that's a it's a great question, Amber. I think um, you're absolutely right in that the the protocols vary so so much, um, and and no one has the absolute uh, and really a good idea about what it means. You know whether it should be time based or sort of function based. Obviously, the surgeons, you know, are often very time based. Um, and if you look even at something like ACL, like it's only now that, that we have some more robust kind of measures to be able to test whether someone's ready to go back. Um, I think for the shoulder, for me, I'm, you know, you need, they need to have, you know, been able to participate in kind of full training, but, but really importantly with no apprehension. I think that's probably the, the critical thing so that, uh, you know, particularly for instability. So, you know, you need to be able to get up off the ground. You need to be able to fall on your shoulder. You need to be able to tackle someone if it's a, a contact type sport. Um, so you've done all that sort of stuff in training, but you haven't been apprehensive about doing it. Um, and so that's probably one of the critical things for me before, before I'm happy to let someone go back, particularly to Australian football um, or rugby, you know, where we're tackling 
is and being tackled, actually tackling is probably the, the critical thing where they're likely to sort of re-injure. So if they're happy to do that and they're happy to do it multiple times and, and when they're fatigued, then you know I think that's the that's the critical point when when they should be able to return. And look for other sports, it's really you know, it comes down to more uh, you know, their range of motion, their stability at the end of range, and again, just their confidence and their performance. So are they, if it's a tennis player, are they, they serve, you know, back to what they were previously able to do in terms of speed? Um, you know, I just uh, rehabbed uh, a dodgeball player, the captain of the Australian dodgeball team. So, you know, is he able to throw, you know, 200 throws in a dodgeball game and, and not be too sore afterwards and not be apprehensive about doing it and not landing and those kind of things. So hopefully that answers your question. Brilliant. Uh, so I think that sort of lends nicely in terms of, especially with you talking about um, making sure that they can return to sport with apprehension and, and pain sometimes being a little bit of an indicator, but pain during exercise. So you've given your athlete or your patient exercises, they have pain during those exercises. What's your feeling on that? Do you just yeah. educate them to about that it's going to be painful or do you reduce the intensity or something around the exercise to make sure yeah. that it's painful? So that's a really good question, Sean. And I know people, you know, people have different opinions on this and I'll just say from the outset, this is my opinion. Um, like upper upper limb conditions, limb conditions, and you know uh, joint conditions have a much higher propensity to um, central sensitization. And when you compare that with something like an Achilles tendinopathy or a patellar tendinopathy, and I know I've heard Ebony Rio speak about this, and and maybe it's something to do with um, the the continual sort of use of your upper limb so you can't kind of get away, even when you're talking you can't kind of get away with not using your upper limbs whereas you can get away with occasionally not using your lower limbs or not stressing the tendons for example if it's a tendinopathy type condition so there's there's sort of a break from pain when you're thinking about lower limbs sometimes when you've got the upper limb, you know, they're often there's this constant pain and they are, for whatever reason, more susceptible to central sensitization. And so when I'm exercising, I am concerned with pain. So I don't want people to feel really any pain when they're doing it. Uh, if it's a tendon condition, if it's a degenerative tendon condition, they're feeling pain while they're doing it, they're going to be in a lot of pain after they've done it as well. And if it's an instability type, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, if they're feeling pain when they're doing it, they're often in the wrong position. So the, the humeral head is not located in the glenoid fossa, the scapula is in a poor position, and the rotator cuff are being overworked when you're trying to actually do the exercise. So particularly in the early stages, I'm not a fan of pain. But the critical thing is, is to teach the patient what you mean by pain. Because sometimes they're in pain, but it's just because the muscle's working. So, and that's a very different thing. So they're feeling like a burning in their external rotators when you, you know, you're doing external rotation exercise. That's fine. But if they're feeling their biceps tendon pain when they're doing it, that's not so good. You know, they're often in the wrong position. So, as I said, particularly in the early stages, zero pain, uh, unless it's that muscle pain that they're, you know, they're feeling the muscle working. And so, so many people just really misinterpret what they're feeling. 
And that's mm -hmm. a really important conversation early on. You know, in the later stages, I'm still actually not that happy for them to be experiencing their pain. You know, that pain that they had before they had their surgery or that pain that they had, you know, that what was the thing that they came in with. If it's something different, that's okay. But if it's their pain, I'm not happy with it because it means to me that they're kind of overstressing whatever structure they've been overstressing. Um, so, yeah, that's just my opinion. Yeah, I, I suppose it's one of those really difficult things about there's not – we don't often look at their pain during exercises in research, so it's sort of difficult to and It's great to get your yeah. clinical perspective. So then it sort of, I think, also leads on nicely. Then using pain to sort of see whether you've got the loads right or the exercises, rehabilitation exercises right, do you use pain or some other marker to know when to progress your patients? Yep, that's a great question too. Um, again, it probably um, goes back to Hamish in the subgrouping, but I think if if you're looking at sort of a degenerative tendinopathy type patient, uh, they often feel pain later on, and you guys know that with the tendon stuff. So that pain, night pain, is a really critical thing, um, and so you get people to monitor that. So if they've got, if they have an increase in night pain, or their night pain's more than say a three out of ten then you're not progressing them with a tendinopathy. If it's an instability type patient, then you're progressing based on stability. So you're progressing based on the fact that they can maintain good scapular position or they can hold their humeral head well in the glenoid when they're doing the exercise and they don't lose that over 20 repetitions, for example. So they can do it in a sustained fashion and then you're ready to up there up the ante they might still be doing those other ones in the background but you can progress the range of motion so you might start to you know do their rotators up up into abduction um, but it's really about stability and that look it's not only not only just for stability patients but all of your shoulder patients look at people's form when they're doing it and see that they can maintain the form through the whole exercise and that that's when you can progress them so when you can get to you know 20 repetitions three sets maintaining your form controlling where the humeral head is then i'm happy to progress that exercise make it harder make it faster make it through range more you know bring it into abduction and only then really that you'd be concerned about um, that and so it's not necessarily pain with the shoulder it's much more about control fantastic well I have just seen a late surprise guest, which I'm very <laughs> excited to see because we have been getting a lot of questions. So, Andrea, <laughs> thank you so much for jumping on uh, at, at this point. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. Now, for those who don't realise this, uh, we've got Dr. Andrea Mosler, who is a, another postdoctoral researcher at our research centre. Um, and has worked with a lot of uh, overhead throwing athletes. And Andrea, we've had a couple of questions about this. So in sort of one or two important points, what are some of the important rehab aspects when you're trying to rehabilitating an overhead throwing athlete? Yeah, look, I think one of the key things when um, rehabilitating an overhead athlete is, first of all, working out exactly the loads of their specific sport. So that will be really different in a cricket uh, thrower versus a baseball pitcher versus a water polo player. And also, it will depend a little bit on the presentation of the shoulder. So 
uh, in particular with a water polo player, for example, we need to really be careful to build up their tolerance to the different loads required of that sport. So part of it might be building up their tolerance to swimming, building up their tolerance to throwing, building up their tolerance to shooting, um, and also being safe with the contact and the weight training that's required for that sort of sport. So those different phases may actually occur at different points within the rehabilitation. So that is, uh, that's actually almost the art of the rehabilitation of um, the overhead shoulder in athletes. And one of the things that sort of Tanya was talking about before was about them sending them back into sport when they're not apprehensive um, being one of the components but also she spoke about her tolerance for pain during the rehabilitative exercises um, is that any different in the overhead athlete are you tolerating them having more um, a little bit more pain when they're back to their sport or are you sort of trying to get them uh, back to a pretty low and stable level Oh, look, that is so difficult um, because it, it, yeah, because every athlete will almost have a different ability to tolerate pain and uh, you probably need to look at that more at an individual level. Um, if you, They've done surveys looking at, uh, say, elite male gymnasts and up to 95, 90, 97% of them experience pain in those trainings. Um, so it's normal for them to experience pain and you may have an overhead athlete uh, who really feels like their performance is particularly affected when they have to experience pain while they're throwing while you have other throwing athletes that can tolerate a four or five out of ten and that's normal for them so my feeling is that um, it's probably a panacea to try to uh, expect to be able to rehabilitate and and have overhead athletes return to sport without any pain whatsoever. Um, but I would use a similar kind of traffic light system that we use with a lot of other injuries in overhead athletes. So over six out of ten is is uh, pain that we can't tolerate between four and six will probably be something that we would negotiate with the athlete and, um, you know, under four is probably able to be tolerated. Fantastic. Anything to add? No, that's Hang fantastic, on. Andrea. That's awesome. Brilliant. So we're getting towards the end here and we did have one uh, question from uh, an anonymous attendee. Um, so, and this is probably for both Andrea and Tanya, um, are there any sort of shoulder exercises that we could consider to try and prevent shoulder injuries? And I suppose in both our daily population as well as our athletic population. Um, um, well, I think in the athletic population, I'm sure Andrea will add to this, you know, that there's a little bit of evidence to show that, um, you know, some rotator cuff strengthening and in particular, so proprioceptive type strengthening, um, you know, using weight bearing type exercises can help to prevent rotator cuff uh, or actually instability episodes. In, and that was in a rugby population. I think in the general population, you know, there, there's so many 
factors that that impact on the shoulder and not you know probably most importantly lifestyle type factors so you know don't get diabetes don't smoke um, have a healthy lifestyle and that will protect your shoulders but I think in terms of uh, you know no, I think having good external rotator strength you know some good scapular position good posture also helpful for uh, preventing shoulder problems in the community good thoracic mobility so you know people are working at computers all the time not putting their shoulders under stress so yeah there are definitely lots of prevention but I, I don't know whether we could do it population wide and, and wide and get any great result but I'll let Andrea comment on the sporting yeah Andrea for the athletic population is there any exercises or anything that research can tell us about preventing shoulder injuries yeah, there's a little bit of contradictory evidence about risk factors for um, shoulder pain in overhead athletes. But certainly from my uh, clinical experience, ensuring that they have optimal um, external rotation strength relative to their body weight, but also the ratio between internal rotation and external rotation strength. And we want that ideally for the throwing athletes to be under 1.5, so we don't want the internal rotation strengths to be too much greater than the external rotation strength. As Tanya mentioned, there is uh, some evidence with that dyskinesia can be a risk factor for developing shoulder pain in um, handball players, but then in a, a relatively similar population, but males and females, a reproduction of that study actually found that scapular dyskinesis was not a risk factor for <laughs> overhead shoulder um, shoulder pain so we're not quite we don't have strong evidence of scapular dyskinesis but it makes sense to ensure that we have um, good scapular strength uh, sorry good strength of the scapular muscles and control and most important importantly with our overhead throwers is to look at their biomechanics and ensure that they're optimally using their kinetic chain and this is something that we had a lot of um, challenge with the water polo players because um, they're basically trying to throw in water. So trying to ensure that the uh, forces imparted onto the ball come more from the lower limbs and the trunk. And um, totally agree with Tanya that having optimal uh, thoracic rotation and lateral flexion is really important for ensuring that um, kinetic chain link linkage is optimal. There's such some fantastic clinical perspectives. I'm sure everyone's finding them really useful. Um, Tan, just to finish up, you've spoken a number of times about educating your patients, communicating, and what one of the attendees asked a question is, how important is self-efficacy in managing someone with shoulder pain? And, sort of, and then how does education potentially play into that? Yeah, look, I think self-efficacy as we all know as clinicians, is critical in any injury. So if a person believes that they can overcome the condition or get back to their sport or get back to work, then generally they will. You know, that's the, that's the key ingredient. Um, so education is critical. You know, if, if you can get to them first before they've had scans or injections or a surgical review, uh, then I think they generally have a really good outcome because we can educate them that... Uh, yes, you have this shoulder pain, but we're going to do this progressive kind of exercise program, get your shoulder strong enough to withstand or to increase capacity for whatever you need to do in your 
in your work or in your sporting um, activities. Um, and so that's fine. But, you know, if they've already got some beliefs that either, you know, then other people have put into their heads or that they've read on Google, uh, then that can be a little bit more of a challenge. But so education really is critical um, and, you know, particularly uh, for conditions that are just going to take a little while and you just need to stick with them. And that's probably something that I see sometimes physios or practitioners do uh, wrong is that they just really try and progress people because they're not quite sure what else to do rather than say, look, this is going to take, you know, a little bit of time and really educate the patient on how long it's going to take and that they have to progress slowly condition is and just keep them keep them actually with it so education is really critical and I find you know if you can give people some prognosis you know if you, if you understand the condition well enough um, then people really feed off that and they really increases their self-efficacy. Brilliant I think there's some great research by Rachel Chester in the UK where she's looked at sort of basically the biggest predictors of uh, positive outcomes for physiotherapy is one, their level of self-efficacy, and also if they thought they were going to get better from physiotherapy, if they thought they were going to get better, they That's got right. better. It's sort of surprise, surprise. So that yeah. education <laughs> and all those sorts of things that indirectly can affect that are just so important, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Rachel's stuff also showed, you know, that the detrimental impact on that, you know, they have a surgical review and then the person and the, the surgeon says, look, uh, go and try physio. And if that doesn't work, then come back and, and we can operate. So, you know, it's that whole idea that I'm not, I don't really think that physio is going to work, but I can fix you. So why would somebody want to do for three months and have physio when they think that the person telling them that has the answer to their problem? So, yeah, I mean, edu we, we talk about this all the time, but education and the way that, you, you know, the language that you use and they're all critical. And I don't know if they're more critical in shoulder, but they're still critical. So. Still something that sort of needs to be considered. Absolutely. Tan, your vocal cords are probably straining by the end of this. So <laughs> what do you want me to do now? <laughs> <laughs> say, we'll sort of we won't finish up with a national anthem or anything like that, which you have been known to do at certain basketball teams. Um, but just to finish up, some if you the for the attendees that have listened to your fantastic answers tonight, what's the one or two hot tips that you hope they take away from tonight? Um, hopefully that the scapula is, was and always will be important <laughs> uh, in terms of shoulder function. Um, well, potentially, you know, listening to me and Andrea, that, you know, that we've got a, a long way to go, I suppose, in terms of catching up in sort of shoulder research and return to sport and, and criteria and, and things like that, but we're doing our best. Um, and that also, yeah, I think we do need to get better clinically, but also from a research perspective about those subgroups. And I think that will change the way we manage and the patients and get better outcomes in our research trials and in, in the clinic as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you all to our attendees and our fantastic panel members. Thank you, Tanya, and thank you, Andrea, for logging in from the emergency department. Thanks, Andrea. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, again, thank you to all the attendees who were on tonight. Uh, we really are thoroughly uh, 
blown away by the responses these have had and we are going to continue to do as many of these as we can. Um, if you can, it is worthwhile you bookmarking uh, our blog, uh, which you should be able to find through our Twitter page, our Facebook, uh, because we do post the recordings of these videos uh, on the blog and through SoundCloud and YouTube. So you can get it wherever you want to get your uh, PD content. Um, oh, Meg, you have posted the blog's uh, website in the chat. That's fantastic. Um, make sure you bookmark that website. It's always a great resource for fantastic infographics as well as uh, follow-up reports from sessions like this. Uh, upon closing the event, you will be taken to a survey. It'd be great if you could spend 30 seconds uh, completing that because it's really useful for us to try and make sure that we're creating events that are best suited to your needs and that you find enjoyable. So again, thank you for tuning in tonight. Uh, keep engaged with our social media channels because that's when you'll hear about our next uh, webinar which, uh, and Q&A session, which uh, we'll let you know when that happens as soon as possible. So again, thank you and have a good night, morning, day, wherever you are. Thanks.